You know, I, I love the imagery and I love the framework that Advent offers us, this idea that we are bookended by these pillars of God's grace, these touchstones of heaven to earth, uh, one where God came to stay with us for a short while, and another where God comes to receive us so that we may stay with him forever. Uh, I, I think you'll agree that uh, it's very helpful to have these reference points, uh, and it makes us look back at Christmas more intently um, as both are a reminder, uh, as both a reminder of the past and the promise of the future, and it's these lights, the light of Jesus, that saves us, sustains us, and steers us going forward. Um, here in between, between the first and second coming of Christ, we celebrate Jesus and we recognize that if not for his, his appearances on earth, there would be no salvation. The Bible uses these, this language that he appeared as he seemingly came out of nowhere and changed everything. Uh, when, when someone makes an appearance, it's a significant thing. And needless to say, Jesus' first coming was the most significant thing to ever happen. That is, until he appears once again. So, if you got your Bibles today, I would love for you to begin uh, uh, with me by looking at Titus chapter 2. Um, we'll turn over to Isaiah in just a little bit, but I want to begin our time by reading from, uh, from Titus, which is a little letter in the New Testament. Um, after the main epistles of Paul, you'll go through 1st, 2nd Timothy, and you'll find Titus. Uh, I want to look at Titus 2, and then we're going to read another passage in Titus 3. Um, and Paul is going to use these two opposite ends of our age, the first coming and the second coming of Christ, uh, to detail what our mindset should be for what Whatever small segment of time that we get to experience within, between those bookends, between those milestones, between those touch points that God made with earth, I want you to hear how Paul uses those two things, uses the first and second coming of Christ uh, to encourage us in how we make use of our time here on earth and how it might change the way we live. Titus 2, verse 11 through 13. If you've never committed these verses to memory or highlighted these verses in your Bible, uh, I, I believe they, they really portray an, an awesome uh, picture um, of the age that we live in between the first and before the second coming of Christ. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. That something that we could not obtain for ourselves, that we could not get for ourselves, that we could not find for ourselves, God brought it to us and it appeared to us through, of course, the person of Jesus Christ. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So do you see how Paul uses these three points of time? In verse 11, he refers to the first coming, that Christ appeared, that we live in this present age. And then in verse 13, he points to the second appearing, the second coming of Jesus, that you and I live in this time between. Now these candles, these lights make it so clear that it's his burning light that wakes our hearts up and it's his guiding light that continues to guide us. That it's the light of God. It's the appearing of Christ to us that wakes us up and it's the continual burning of these flames that guides us 
going forward. You, you see, Paul is trying to tell a young pastor in Titus in a young church that Titus was pastoring. He's telling them to anchor their worship and their devotion in both Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And he tells them this, that the first coming, Jesus provided salvation and purpose, that he saved us from our lostness and our sinfulness, and he gives us a purpose that we might deny ungodliness, deny the world that tempts us, and live in a sober and righteous and godly way, that you and I have a reason to live out this age and a purpose to live in this age, that we can be distinct among all the rest. And then he looks forward in the second coming and he promises that you and I will be delivered. That is the blessed hope. That is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. That in his second coming, he will deliver us from this fallen world and reward us with what we've only tasted in this life. Now, it's the salvation he gives us now that previews the true deliverance we'll obtain then. It's the purpose we get to find now that gives us a taste of the future reward. And these themes we've been gathering around in Advent with hope and peace uh, and two more still to come, they are provisions that Jesus gave. They are the inheritance for Christians that Paul speaks of, that glory, that blessed hope that, that speaks of our inheritance that we have as Christians. And the Christmas gifts of hope and peace are just a few of what we've already unwrapped and begin to embrace. Now, over in chapter 3, Paul goes on and he's going to talk about how we are so richly blessed and have been transformed through Christ. And he implores us to take hold of our inheritance. Flip over to chapter 3 and look at verses 3 through 7. And again, he he frames what our lives are like apart from Jesus and what our lives can now be like because God has brought something to us, brought salvation to us, a gift to us through Christmas. For we ourselves were once, were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Now, I want to make it very clear that the beginning of that verse speaks of our desire to find ourselves in this life. And the last part of that verse shows what the reality of that quest is, that while we are looking for answers, it only ends up making us people that we aren't happy with. It makes us full of malice and envy and hatefulness because the things that the world offers us don't end up changing us for the better, but they actually drag us down further into sin. So he says that we were once like this. We were once without hope. And then in verse four, but when the kindness and the love of God, our savior toward man appeared. Again, notice his repeating that word appeared. We've seen it three times already. That appearance, that, that infers that we were not looking for it and that we couldn't find it if we would have been looking for it. That God appeared to us. And, and here's what he's talking about. That in the world that was, nobody was looking for a savior. The Jews had given up hope. The rest of the world didn't think they needed a savior. Yet, out of nowhere, seemingly, in a little town called Bethlehem, a savior appeared. And it took years for the whole world to hear about it. But of course, eventually it would change the world. Verse 5 
He appeared bringing salvation, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So not only did it appear to us, but it's a work that God has done within us. So do you see the idea that Paul is making it very clear that if not for the coming of Christ, we would not have salvation. He appeared to us and he has done a work within us. Again, not by works which we have done. Can it be more clear, right? But by a work that he does in our hearts through his Holy Spirit. And what do, we, what do we talk about in Christmas? Emmanuel, God with us. Originally, God was with us through just a single man. But after his resurrection, God has been with us through his spirit that has spread to all of us. Again, that's all starting with Christmas. Verse six, whom he poured out on us abundantly, So if there's ever any question, is there enough for you or is there enough of God's spirit to raise us up? He makes it clear. He poured him out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So how do we receive this? It's the gift that keeps on giving literally, right? Verse 7, that having been justified by his grace. So again, Paul is etching this in stone, not by our works, not by our efforts. He appeared, he provided, he has done this work, pouring out on us abundantly, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs, there's the word, according to the hope of eternal life. So here's what Paul is telling us this morning, that because Jesus came the first time, and because he's done this work through the Holy Spirit that all was kickstarted by Christmas, that you and I are, have been made heirs of eternal life. That means we inherit something from God. And the payoff, the ultimate grand payoff is still to come, but in the here and now, between the two appearances, we can allow these lights to guide us and transform us Now, these lights have reminded us how desperate, how foolish, Paul uses the word foolish, deceived, how foolish and in bondage we were and blind we were before we came to Jesus. And that's anybody's condition that's not in Christ. Foolish, deceived, in bondage, blind. But the lights also remind us that only through Christ can we find our way in this life. And we don't have to once again go astray. Not once again become enslaved by this world and in the world's chains without hope and without peace and without joy. The the language of bondage and the language of suppression is used throughout the Bible to describe our struggle with sin, our battle with sin. In the Old Testament, the prophets made it very clear, as Paul has echoed here, that there was nothing that we could do and there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves it would take an act of God, and it did take an act of God, an appearance of God, a touchdown by God into our very midst to rescue us. We hear from Isaiah the prophet a lot in the season of Christmas and Advent for good reason, because he had a lot to say about the coming Messiah. Uh, And I want you to flip back to Isaiah, Isaiah 61, if you want to turn there. I want to read... Um, uh, 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 an often overlooked passage 
during the Christmas season, but one that I think is really full of the themes that we sing about and that we talk about in this season. Isaiah 61, the verse four verses, um, I think you could almost call this the Messiah's mission statement. That if there was a mission statement in heaven that describes what the Messiah was coming to do for you and for me, for all of us, Isaiah 61, particularly verse one through four, makes it very clear what the Messiah was coming to do and, and, and how he was going to do it even. If you found your place, Isaiah 61, verse 1 through 4, listen to the word of God through Isaiah. And again, he's speaking as if he, he's speaking for the Messiah, and, and that's why you'll, you'll, this is in the first person. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And the day of vengeance or the day of revenge, and that may sound out of place there, but we'll explain that. The day of revenge of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to give to those who mourn in Zion, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, or the oil of gladness, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified, that they shall rebuild the old ruins, that they shall raise up the former desolations, that they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many, can we say every Generation. Now we hear this language of transformation all across this passage. Uh, I, I think that's pretty clear. Uh, we read about wounds being bound up. We read about prison doors being opened up. We read about ruins being raised up. We read about devastations experiencing restoration. So you can see there's a total transformation taking place. The Messiah is coming to bind up wounds, to heal, to open the doors that, of the imprisoned, to restore what has been devastated devastated, to raise up and repair what has been ruined. But we also hear something else. At the heart of this restoring and saving work is the Spirit of God within us. That's verse 3 specifically, where Paul, where, where the writer says that he's going to give us the oil of joy or the oil of gladness and he's going to give us the garment of praise and he's going to plant us like a tree. So this idea that we are going to be reconnected to God. You and I are disconnected, are without a relationship, without a, a, a constant flow from our God. So this is about changing our outlook, changing our perspective, changing how we perceive and process the world. And I want to bring your attention to verse 2 because he says, proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord or the year of God's favor. That speaks of making it very known to you and me that we are favored by God. But he also mentions the vengeance of God. And I want to make this very clear. Is this, is this passage that speaks of, uh, of those that are lost? That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about God getting vengeance against the enemy who has enslaved his people. 
Right, because what is, the, what is the, the, the rest of this text talking about? Giving comfort, giving consolation, giving joy, giving roots of righteousness, rebuilding and repairing and raising up and bringing restoration. The, the, the message there is that God is going to get revenge against the enemy who has ruined his creation and who has enslaved his people. And he has done that by giving you and I life by giving you and I a relationship with Jesus Christ. In our sin, we don't have the capacity to truly enjoy this life, to understand uh, and receive and experience the good and the blessing and the favor that God has for us. And and this, I believe, is the cornerstone of the inheritance that Paul spoke about in Titus, having been impacted by Jesus' first coming and looking forward to his second coming. This is our good news. This is our promise that God has given us his presence. And through his presence, he's totally transforming our lives. Now, maybe you know this, but in case you didn't, this text from Isaiah was the text that Jesus launched his ministry with when he spoke in his hometown synagogue. Of all to choose, I mean, there's a whole lot of Old Testament passages that talk about Jesus, but of all to choose, pretty remarkable that he chose this one. Of course, this is long destined as, as the one he would read that day in that worship service, but why did he choose this one? And what does it say about what he came to do and what he comes to offer? I think it says a lot, and I think it reveals so much, and I want to unpack this a little bit this morning because the language here in Isaiah is so vivid and the contrast is so distinct. And according to Paul, Jesus alone gives us this experience with God's Spirit, this salvation from God. As Isaiah contrasts what it's like to be empty of God's Spirit and what it's like to be anointed with God's spirit, what it's like to be lost, and what it's like to be saved. Because he makes it very clear that Jesus came to change our status. Whether we are imprisoned or brokenhearted or wounded, he came to change that. Very clear. So I want to talk about why I believe this was the passage that Jesus began his ministry with. When we fail as creatures... Now, no, we weren't there. But when our ancestors, when Adam and Eve fell as creatures, when humanity fell away from God in Eden, we were affected, as in our our DNA, uh, humanity as a whole, our species was affected from stem to stern, or, or better said, from our innermost soul to our outermost shell. We were affected, and maybe the better word is we were infected in every way, from our minds to our bodies, from our thoughts to our actions, from our perception of reality to how we handle and step into reality. And maybe you've never thought about the fall like this before, but think of creation as God intended it. Before the fall, everything was in harmony. We were in harmony with God as creatures. We were in harmony with ourselves. We were in harmony across from one another. And when we as creatures fell, when Adam and Eve sinned, all of creation, everything fell out of sync. Everything lost its balance when the fall happened. And you know what happens when something loses its balance? What happens when you lose your balance? You fall, right? Or you're likely to fall. So the world in the universe from that day forward, and we as a species from that day forward have been out of balance, have been off balance. We are imbalanced creatures. And that means that every part of us is imbalanced. 
and feel free to use this as an excuse to everyone around you going forward. We are imbalanced mentally, emotionally, physically. All of us are imbalanced creatures. Now, I consider myself pretty clumsy, uh, which maybe that has something to do with my equilibrium being off. I don't know. Um, I've got two ear infections right now, so that's even more of an excuse to be clumsy. Um, But we're all clumsy, not just physically. We are clumsy inwardly. Our inner wiring is off balance. Our emotions, our mental faculties, no matter how sharp we are or in certain areas, we are all imbalanced. In some areas, we show it more than others. And we talk about all the different areas uh, all the time in church about how we in our innermost being, in our souls, are out of step with God, all balanced with God. Because Jesus in the Bible teaches us to trace all of our struggles back to the fall, back to our sin. Now, like with your physical bodies, there are things uh, with our brains and our heads, there are things that you can do to help mitigate the issues of imbalance, whether it's from uh, vision or a concussion. Uh, Likewise, when it comes to your souls, there are things that you can do to help overcome these deficiencies, these imbalances we have that ultimately come from our disconnect with God and our disconnect with our creator and our maker. The Bible does not paint a pretty picture of what our lives look like disconnected from God. The Bible does not paint a pretty picture of what you and I are like in our sin, but it paints a glorious picture of what it's like to be reconnected to God because it tells a glorious story uh, about how God came to an imbalanced and broken world in order to restore it all, most importantly, restore us all. And it leaves us without any doubt that Jesus' entry into our fallen world provides us everything that we need to be saved and restored, rewired and rehabilitated, if you will. The themes of Christmas represent all the different solutions and remedies that humanity was granted to help with his deficiencies and that Jesus provides, that God promises us. We've talked about hope, how Jesus gives us confidence uh, in salvation and deliverance from every measure of trouble because God with us means strength for us. We've talked about peace, how Jesus gives us certain assurance that uh, in this world where there's conflict and uncertainty, we've been reconciled to God uh, and we have favor of God on our side. If we have a right standing with God, what can possibly knock us down? God with us means his comfort is with us. But I think even those point to something greater that Jesus offers us that I want to amplify today that I believe is emphasized in Isaiah 61. And that's pertaining to our joy. This Christmas gift is that it may not be the most important because they're all important equally, but it's pertaining to an area of our lives that I think encompasses both hope and peace in terms of our want for, uh, our want for hope and our want for peace comes from our ultimate want for joy. And the reason why I think this is maybe the most important one to talk about is this is the area in which we are under the most attack by the enemy. And it's also the area in which we are the most vulnerable in. You know, there's some Christmas gifts you have to be fragile with because you have to make sure you remember the box that the, the contain, whatever the, the box contains. Um, you can't be too rough with that box. When it comes to the gift that Jesus comes to give us, this one is the most fragile of all the Christmas gifts. And again, we're talking about joy which if you were to define joy, I I think the best way to do it or the best way I could figure out to do it is is thrill and the cheerfulness of life. Joy is that reason inside of all of us to continue 
in this life with confidence and with certainty that God has a reason, that there is something for us to find joy in, the thrill and cheerfulness that continues to replenish within us. I'm not going to sugarcoat this for, for us uh, of all the ways that our minds and hearts are affected by the fall, of all the ways that we are always coming up short where we, from where we would like to be, um, not even considering where God would want us to be. We all, I think, realize that we come up short when it comes to joy, that none of us have the joy that we would like to have. And there's a whole lot of people with spiritual expertise and all their self-help expertises that try to explain away, hey, why don't we have this joy? And I just think we can all agree uh, that, that this is the area that we struggle the most in. I think the subject of joy, the concept of joy, possessing joy and maintaining joy is our greatest weakness. Not just as Christians, but as people. We are all like cracked vessels with holes all throughout. And while we struggle maintaining peace and hope as God intended more than anything, we just can't seem to hold on to joy. And what's ironic is, this is the thing that we want the most. This is the thing that we chase after the most. Our want for joy is why we want peace and we want love and we want home. We want security. We want comfort. We want to be loved. We want more than anything to have joy and we find joy through those other things. Now, I know it's a trendy thing to do but to make a distinction between joy and happiness, but there is a difference. On the surface, we often can't distinguish the difference, but the quick and easy way to separate these two is to say that happiness is short-lived. Happiness is short-lived, but joy is ongoing. But again, I don't think the way actually to arrive at joy is by undermining what makes you happy. I'm not trying to say that. Uh, as in, I'm not going to tell you that what makes you happy doesn't actually make you happy. I think it does. I think that's a good thing. A lot of preachers and Christian speakers try to sell us on true joy by basically saying oh, what makes us happy isn't legit. I'm here to tell you it may be legitimate, but the problem is it just can't last. I'm not saying it doesn't make you happy. I'm sure it does but it doesn't last, does it? Or it's not always able to withstand something negative overshadowing it. But here's what happens, and this is why we're making this distinction. Every day, every day, we embark on a quest for lasting joy. And again, I don't know what your motives are, but I'm gonna just, I'm gonna read your mind for a little bit. Every one of you, every one of us, we get up out of bed every day and our ultimate desire is to find joy. The reason why we do what we do is ultimately and genuinely because we want to be happy. We want to have joy, both sustainable and unshakable. So we chase after all sorts of things, that, that joy, thinking that joy is just around the corner. We go after love and peace and hope and security, pleasure and prosperity and so much more. And we do these things, nothing wrong with it, we do these things to be happy. But what we often realize is what we talked about earlier. We are cracked vessels. Every ounce that is poured into us leaks out. Some at quicker rates than others. But every one of us are cracked, broken vessels. And every ounce that gets poured in finds its way out. But our brains and our souls keep chasing it, yet we can't hold on to it. Now, back again to our deficiency and our, our deficiency conversation. Some of us are more fragile than others. 
And I say that with the most res- utmost respect. So many of our, in our world today, we, we struggle with, I'll say we because I think all of us do, we struggle with depression. Experts on the brain have reduced our ability to perceive and experience happiness and joy down to an exact science almost. Our brains have chemicals in them, dopamine, serotonin, other things, and they are the equivalent of oxygen to our lungs and our physical bodies. In depression, these chemicals are either completely lacking or constantly being suppressed and depleted by all sorts of factors, legitimate factors. If there's something that you struggle with today, I want you to know you are not a small percentage of the world. All of humanity is right there with you, whether we realize it or not. While some may deal with it more acutely and more specifically, some may understand it or are engaged with it, all of us fight against the suppression of our joy. Every one of us do. Some of us are good at smiling. Some of us aren't. Some of us are good at pretending. Some of us aren't. Some of us can hold on to it a little bit longer than others. But ultimately, all of us fight against this suppression, this suffocation of our joy. And I want to try to explain it in a way that I think makes our plight, uh, why I think it makes our plight harder and our struggle more, uh, our struggle greater as we chase after and settle for solutions of happiness the world sells us on. The difference between happiness and joy that we actually desire is like this. If you're underwater and you're running out of air and you just come up for air long enough to get a gasp and you go right back under, you're not going to get enough air to fill your lungs, Right? But if you're swimming and you go underwater and you come back up just enough to breathe once and you go back under, eventually because of anxiety and because of the duress your lungs are under, you're going to get, you're going to feel more and more, right, panicky and you're going to feel more and more like, hey, you are running out of air. And those little gasps of air are not enough to fill your lungs up. Every time you come up, your heart rate goes up because it's under duress. It intensifies because you're only getting enough air just to tease your lungs, the suffocation is inevitable, even if you get a little bit of a gasp every few minutes. What you actually need is to get on the dry land and breathe for a few minutes and get your lungs filled back up and then go back. What's even better is putting on a scuba suit with tanks of air on the back, right? You see the difference in what makes you happy and what makes you joyful? What makes you happy for a little while and what makes you joyful for all the while is whether you are getting little gasps of air or whether you have a constant flow of air. Does that make sense? You see, some of us, some of you are living off those little gas for air. But that's no way to live. We need a constant airflow. And since life is no bed of roses and we're often submerged into the deep, we need some sort of solution to take us, take with us under the waves. That's what joy is. That's what joy is. We all fight against, we all fight against the suppression or the oppressive world that doesn't just drain us of our joy, but blocks us from true joy and offers us counterfeit solutions to our true joy. But Christmas, and this is so good, Christmas came so that we would not have to settle, so that we might be joyful always and forever. And of course, a preacher is going to say that. But this isn't my idea. It's not my concept. And I didn't come up with it. 
This is baked into the Christmas story why God sent a Savior. We may seem like an impossible dream, confused that, that the joy God offers us is just this happiness that the world drip feeds us. And I understand why we may all believe that joy is never going to be there for us in a longing, a long-standing or an outstanding way. But Christmas offers you a gift that literally will keep on giving if, if, if you understand where to find it and you allow God to show you how to keep it. When Jesus was born, you'll remember the angels told the shepherds. What, 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 was, the, what was the message? I bring you good news of great joy for all people. Now, I mean, that's a big statement to say, hey, I mean, you know, if I stood up here and said, hey, I've got something that's for everybody, people may say, well, it may be relevant for us in this day and time and this place in the world. But the angel said, hey, I've got something that is good for all people, and it's the source of great joy. I think that's got to be, it should be our favorite verse in the Bible. Most powerful verse in the Bible, maybe. The gift of Jesus Christ, God with us, good news for all, because it means great joy for all. Nobody's excluded, and nobody's too complicated. That includes you. God acknowledges that life can be and often is a miserable affair apart from him. And let's just be straight. Apart from Jesus, at best we're deceived and delusional. At worst, we're dejected and dismayed. There's two categories of people that aren't in Christ. They're either deceived and delusional and they think they've got it figured out or they are aware of, of it and they're dejected and dismayed. And even Christians can be like this because we're looking in the wrong places for what Jesus said I can give you and I only can give you. I know that's harsh, but we're going to receive the good news. We've got to understand the reality apart from him, which is bad news. Uh, and that's what made the shepherds the perfect people to reach out to because they were at the bottom of society, but God came to them first. But this was not just for them, it's for all of us. And when Jesus stood up in his hometown synagogue 30 years later from his birth, everybody's heads turned when he read Isaiah 61. And those that were there at Christmas, very few, it made sense to them because Isaiah 61 promises to put the oil of joy in our souls, to root us in God's righteousness, to give us a connection with God by his spirit that will bind up and repair and rebuild and restore what this world has ground to a pulp. Jesus came to bring great joy all people Jesus brings God's spirit into our lives to dwell alongside of and tend to every disconnect and imbalanced part of us the hopelessness the absence of peace the fear the discontent and most importantly the joylessness the vapidness in us that can never take hold of true happiness Jesus promised that he could provide it it's a big statement big big promise right that he would be the oil of gladness within us. He would give us roots that this world could not sever. So when he stood up in Luke 4 and he read that Isaiah scripture and he said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled. He was saying to them, y'all want to get this? Follow me and follow me only. Now, before he really made it clear, he was approached by all sorts of people that thought they had it figured out and wanted Jesus to affirm what they already believed. After Jesus said this, you can read the Gospels and you've read them, 
all of the rich and powerful in the land came to Jesus and wanted Jesus to tell them they already had what they needed, but that he might would take away what was frustrating them. I've got the money, I've got the power. Jesus, can you just take away all the stuff that's trying to hold me back? All the poor and underprivileged thought that Jesus might would give them rich and powerful standing like those that they envied. They all came to Jesus thinking he was going to prop them up and elevate them. But very quickly, it was clear that was not Jesus' way. He told the very rich and he told the very powerful, sell your possessions, give away all the proceeds to the poor, and follow me exclusively. And people thought, what? He told the very poor that in him they would find all that they needed, not to chase after rich or power, riches or power. He rejected the interest of politicians and elites who refused to give up their statuses. He empowered and invited the weakest and the poorest to join him. And maybe the most perplexing thing that Jesus ever said, and he said it a lot, was the way he summarized what it meant to follow him. Y'all have heard this before. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, if you want to save your life, if you want to find your life, you've got to lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, they will find it and they will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? But, but Jesus, I thought you were offering us great joy. What part of great joy is found in denying ourselves and losing our lives? And Jesus would say, come on, get, come a little close. Let me tell you this. Isn't it yourself that continually frustrates your quest for joy? Isn't it this world and its desires that continually keep you from joy? And yet you get up every day and do the same thing again and again and you still can't find joy and you're still miserable and yet you think that you want me to affirm those things? That's not gonna happen because it's not working. So when I tell you to unfollow it all, that sounds radical, but maybe that's the solution you've been looking for because these other ones haven't been working. So Jesus invited us to follow him, but also unfollow all the other ways we've been pursuing happiness in. People kept trying to force Jesus to fit in their, their worldly modes, politically, economically, all those things, just like we still do. He came to offer more than little spurts of air. He came to fill our lungs up and give us unlimited tanks. His solution was that if he is our salvation, if he is our true source of good news, if we're going to take hold of great joy that he is offering, we've got to turn off every other light that distracts us and guides us in other directions. I know there's part of us that thinks, well, I need these other lights. I'm glad I've got Jesus, but I need these other lights to help me along the way. That I need this light of power, this light of possessions, this light of money, this light of pleasure. They are necessary for my joy being full. And Jesus says, no, no, no. They're actually draining you of the joy I'm trying to give you. And you keep trying to attach me to these other things. And I'm trying to separate you from those things. You see what happens? You see what our problem is? He says, those are keeping you from the joy I've got for you. He says, in God's kingdom, there's one light that rules them all to guide you and give you true joy. And come on, hasn't this world proven to be insufficient for giving you true and lasting joy? From politics to money, prosperity, come on, even religion, hasn't it all proven to be insufficient 
Why do we keep falling for the same lies? He invites us to find ourselves in him, to follow him. Now, let me answer a question. Can his goodness be found in these other things? Maybe, maybe, maybe. But at best, they reflect him and drive us to him. But they don't replace him. And they don't go alongside him. They're beneath him. Jesus told a parable of how we ask for things in this world from our parents and the systems in place, and the world doesn't hold back. The world gives us what we think is good. And it, and it certainly is good in some ways. But once again, he leaned in and countered what we think we need with what he says we need. And he, he made this statement. If you then who are evil know how to give good things to your children, whoa, whoa, Jesus, why'd you call me evil? He says, because hey, you don't have the answer. You can make people happy for a little bit. You can make people smile for a brief moment, but you don't have, enough, you don't have nothing against the avalanche that's coming down on them the next, the next day or the wave that's going to wash them out the next day. This world can make you, drip feed you with little bursts of happiness and you might walk out thinking, man, that feels good. But when the avalanche hits you or the wave hits you, you you're left empty. He says, let me tell you what to ask for. How much more will your heavenly father give you the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in your heart, if you just ask him? Well, that's not gonna pay my bills. It's not gonna make my relationship better. That's not gonna, I, I, I hear you, I hear you. But what you're after, if you're after joy, if you're after that true happiness, this is where it's all got to start and where it's all got to center around. And everything else has to get rebuilt around this center, around this foundation. The Holy Spirit, that God in our hearts, the promise of great joy for all people. True joy, true happiness is found when we value God with us more than anything else. Joy is produced through an authentic and dynamic relationship with Jesus. And if everything in your life is not submitting to that relationship, it's robbing you and draining you and costing you joy. Just like a vine that produces oil, just like trees that are rooted in nutrients, this is what we need to be fulfilled. Isaiah made it clear, we lack this oil of gladness. We lack the root in the right ground. And Jesus provides us that restoration, that reconnection. Famously, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, John 15. Abide in me and I in you. And I will give you what you cannot find elsewhere. And he says in John 15, 11, my joy I will give to you that your joy may be full. So what is the key? What is the secret to joy? It's a connection to Jesus. Not your preacher, not even your church, not your religious routine, definitely not anything in this world. It's a connection to Jesus Christ. And everything else is built on that foundation. Your marriage, your family, your job, your professions, everything else must be built on that relationship with Jesus. If he's not at the foundation of it all, it's got to be torn down to be rebuilt. Isaiah promises he can rebuild it. But the source, the center of it all, the, the, the foundation of it all must be Jesus. Your joy is directly tied to your sensitivity and your reliance on God's abiding presence. My question to you today, is that true for you? Is your joy 
tied to sensitivity to God and reliance on God? Or is it that plus a few other things? Is it that with extra stuff? Or is it not even that at all, but other things more important? Christmas brings the greatest gift, the promises, promises us great joy. So let me ask you, are you falling for this world's false promises and provisions? Are you allowing your joy to be competed for and compromised by lesser solutions? Are you following Jesus? Are you allowing him to add true joy to your life? Are you abiding in him and his spirit abiding in you? He said, all you've got to do is ask for him. I don't know what you've got on your Christmas list this year. We ask for a lot and usually we receive what we ask for or at least good things in the place of. When's the last time you came before your heavenly father and said, God, I want more of you. And if that means I got to get empty of a lot of other stuff, then so be it. Because I want what Isaiah said your mission statement was to come to this earth for. I want that oil of gladness in my soul. I want that connection to you. I want what Jesus said. I want to abide in you. And if that means I'm following everything else and then figuring out where it all ends up or where it all goes after that, if that means putting you first and then figuring out the rest, God, help me do it. Listen, this might be an intimidating task for you, but it's a necessary task. Do you want joy? Do you want that lasting, abiding joy? Or are you just content with going through life with that smirk, that smug, that miserable, bad attitude, that bitter spirit, that negative outlook, that frustration? I think at the center of it all is that we need to be honest. We just can't maintain our joy. And the reason why we can't maintain it is we don't have a vessel to hold it. But what did, what did Paul say in Titus? He will pour out to us abundantly. If you let Jesus repair your heart, there's no deficiency in his provision. I think a lot of us need to come to Jesus and, and put our weight on him and put our trust in him and ask him to carry us. A lot of us need to come and confess that we've put the wrong things first. We've sought joy and happiness in the wrong places. I think a lot of us need to reconsider what has clearly been the gift of Christmas and the evidence is there. Will we allow God, if he has to tear it all down, but most importantly, will we put Jesus at the center of it all? so that he might give us the gift that he came to give us. It wouldn't be a shame if we get to heaven one day and God says, you didn't even get the gift I wanted to give you the most. Great joy. Well, you see, Justin, I've got this thing that's gonna keep me from ever. All people, all people, right? And I don't know about you, but I think all means you. Don't you? I think all means you. And I think that if you don't have joy, and come on, most of us don't all the time. Why don't you ask for it? Because Jesus said, if you know how to give good gifts to your children and you're sinful, have you even asked my heavenly father for what he can give you? I'd take him up on that offer today. Let me pray for you. Heavenly father, thank you so much that you are a good God, a good Father. Lord, all of us, I think if we just would be honest that we are joyless creatures. And the reason why I got it, and we, we want, we, we'll, we'll be honest about it. The reason why is because we'll look at Jesus on Sundays and on Mondays we're back to chasing after all the other stuff. 
And whenever we're left empty at the end of the day and we're mad and we're frustrated and bitter and all this other stuff, the reason why is because we were looking after the wrong source. We were under the wrong fountain. God, I know we can't do this for our spouse. We can't do this for our family. We got to do this for us. And there's a lot of other third parties that factor into whether we'll be able to get it the way we wanted to get it. But we've got to start with ourselves. We've got to start with our own submission to you. The world is competing for it and offering counterfeit and compromising solutions, yet you offer us the real thing. God, would you give us your Holy Spirit? Would you make us joyful and give us the thrill and the cheerfulness of life that is not contingent or temperamental like this world is, but is rooted in you and you alone? God, you promised you would give it. Would we receive it today in Jesus' name? Amen.